Well, thank you all for coming tonight. I know you could have stayed home and watched Mitt Romney make his acceptance speech. I refuse your nomination of me. I would not be a good president. I'd, I'd, I, yeah, that's right. I'd give it up too easily. The whole country, take it, please. Um, so tonight, I, I want to share with you a number of, of things and then open up the floor to discussion. And I want to start with uh, some news from the world of cosmology and uh, astronomy, a field that is very exciting lately. Uh, we had the Voyager 1 space probe, which has been heading out for 35 years, leaving, it left the solar winds, it left the, uh, our, our little solar system, and it is now in interstellar space. You know, it's the one that has the record on it with uh, greetings from the Earth in 33 languages and uh, sounds of Mozart and uh, Chuck Berry and uh, pygmy female chorus. It's an amazing record that's it's now in, in uh, the stellar, interstellar space. And then watching Rover, uh, the Curiosity, be placed on Mars was an amazing, amazing sight. Uh, to imagine that we've we've done that, we've got our probe up there to see, check out that planet. Uh, and I, I I I get the astronomy picture of the day every every day on my browser. It's the opening page. And uh, the other day they had a listing that you could actually sign up to be a star watcher. A planet, uh, look for planets for NASA. They'll give you a little piece, picture, map, map of the sky, and then you watch these stars and see if you see any shadows of planets going around the stars. And uh, you might, you know, notice one that maybe looks habitable, like it's a habitable planet. <laughs> they, they suspect there are thousands of them in our galaxy alone thousands of habitable planets, and uh, considering that there are something like 150 billion galaxies, there's a good chance there's a little life out there somewhere. I think it'd be great if, if we found out there was life elsewhere, because it would take the pressure off of us. We would no longer have to carry the entire burden of meaning in the universe. Um, and then we had the death of uh, Neil Armstrong. I, it gave me an opportunity to once again point out, which very few people seem to know, he blew the, the greatest line that a human could, could speak. At, uh, you know, he said, it's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, which is redundant. 
you've noticed. Uh, other people noticed that. I, I thought I was the only one. I'd never heard a news commentator say it. You know, he meant to say and should have said, it's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. But anyway, leave him with, with his glory. Um, I ran across this book. Somebody turned me on to a book by David Eagleman, who, who wrote a wonderful science book about the brain called Incognito, about the different characters that live in our brain. And before that, he, was, he became somewhat famous for a book called Sum, which uh, I, I want to share this with you, a, a couple pages. Some, uh, the subtitle is 40 Tales from the Afterlife. <clears throat> in the afterlife, you relive all of your experiences, but this time with the events shuffled into a new order. All the moments that share a quality are grouped together. So, you spend two months driving the street in front of your house. Seven months having sex. You sleep for 30 years without opening your eyes. For five months straight, you flip through magazines while sitting on a toilet. You take all of your pain at once, all 27 intense hours of it. Bones break, cars crash, skin is cut, babies are born. Once you make it through, it's agony-free for the rest of your afterlife. But that doesn't mean it's always pleasant. You spend six days clipping your nails, 15 months looking for lost items, 18 months waiting in line, two years of boredom, staring out a bus window or sitting in an airport terminal, one year reading books, two weeks wondering what happens when you die, one minute realizing your body is falling, 77 hours of confusion, one hour realizing you've forgotten someone's name, three weeks realizing you are wrong, two days lying, six weeks waiting for a green light, seven hours, etc., etc. Anyway, it's really sort of reminds you of kind of the mundane nature of our existence, you know. There are some peak experiences, but mostly it's kind of, yeah. So uh, this is Labor Day weekend, so I've I've brought in a couple things to share. Uh, A few years ago, I went to a local bookstore, and they were closed for Labor Day, and they had this sign on the door, which is actually a, a broadside. It was written by Gary Snyder, and uh, I want to read it to you. Let's drink a toast today to all those farmers, workers, artists, and intellectuals of the last 100 years who, without thought of fame or profit, whose motivations were compassionate and humanitarian, worked tirelessly in their dream of a worldwide socialist revolution, who believed and hoped that a new world was dawning and that their work would contribute to a society in which one class does not exploit another, where one ethnic group or one nation does not try to expand itself over another, and where men and women live freely as equals. What we have now is nervous third-world fundamentalism and developed-world global greed, The failure of socialism is the tragedy of the 20th century, and on this Labor Day, at least, we should honor the memory of those who struggled for the dream of what socialism might have been, 
and begin anew again. Gary Snyder. I've noticed that recently the Dalai Lama is again saying that he is part Marxist, that that is his sort of economic policy, the idea of sharing, the idea of distributing the wealth. Um, There are those who would say that the Buddha's that was what the Buddha developed with his Sangha, with his Sangha of monks, that they only had the barest of possessions, the, the, the simplest of possessions, and they uh, uh, shared their, their space, their lives. I remember, I, I heard the Dalai Lama here in, speaking at Berkeley in night. Early 1900s. <laughs> I remember the 1900s. Uh, the early 90s. And it was after the, after the Soviet Union had collapsed. And he was talking about, he was, uh, he was being interviewed by Orville Schell. And uh, he was talking about his childhood when he was in Lhasa still. And the... Chinese government had called him to Beijing for some meetings, and he went there, and after hanging out with them for a while, he said, I don't understand how they can call themselves communists. He said, uh, it's just not the way their government worked, or the, you know, the, there was this hierarchy of power and wealth. And, and then he said, as for me, I think I'm half Buddhist, half Marxist. And the audience gasped. I mean, I mean, people don't. People think it's a dirty word or something. Marxism, socialism, like it's something that we've fought for so long, and there's it's it's evil, and it's going to, you know, take away all your freedoms. And and uh, but I think uh, it's an interesting perspective to to bring it back, perhaps, and consider it. Because what we have now is doesn't seem to be working very well, uh, we're, we're, and we're facing some pretty difficult times. So, um, I want to share with you a an old radio script that I found. I, I revised it a little bit. It was it isn't that old? It's uh, maybe ten years old, but it works. It's sort of timeless, and it's about Labor Day and. So I thought I'd offer it to you. This is Labor Day weekend. I used to do radio shows in in San Francisco, and some of you probably remember them. Friends, it's Labor Day weekend. Time to lay down that plow, put down your heavy load, or just hang up the cell phone, put the mouse in its hole, and then reach for the union flag and wave it high from the rooftop of your corporate headquarters and sing Solidarity Forever. Ah, Labor Day weekend, the last sigh of summer. And just when you were starting to relax, suddenly Labor Day arrives announcing the start of the busy season. It's time to get hyperactive again. 
I think it has a lot to do with the autumn chill, which causes our metabolism to speed up. And then we begin acting out the legacy of our Paleolithic ancestors who had to do major hunting and gathering in order to store up for the winter. So right after Labor Day, we begin our annual shopping binge, which is the modern-day equivalent of hunting and gathering. Labor Day also marks the start of the school year and the beginning of yet another unnecessary all-new fall TV season, and, of course, the appropriate sport of football to accompany the crunch of autumn leaves and the full-tilt intensity of our lives in this new millennium bardo. The fall also means we're coming to the home stretch of the baseball season, and a couple weeks ago, I finally went to my annual game. There I got a taste of a sweeter, more innocent America as I watched a bunch of young millionaires running around in funny stockings, and all of them had the brims of their hats turned forward. Could that be a new fashion statement? But I do appreciate the game of baseball, mostly as a spiritual metaphor. What I see is a diamond of mystical purity penetrating the playing field of illusion, raising the ultimate spiritual question, who am I really? Which in baseball becomes the koan, who's on first? And when you finally realize the answer, which is, I don't know, who's already on third, then you will understand that home is wherever you are and that you are actually running back to where you started and will know the place for the first time. And as you travel that base path to enlightenment, friends, remember that in the contest of life, it is only when you are out that you are finally and eternally safe. Meanwhile, on Labor Day, we should remember that labor is really the wrong word for what most of us do these days. Most of us work, but we don't labor. Labor is done with muscle and blood, skin and bone and blue collar and hard hat. Tote that barge, lift that bale, load 16 ton, what do you get? Well, approximately 400 times less pay than your boss, for one thing. But the real labor is what grows our food and builds great cities and skyscrapers, and that's where the rest of us go to work. Work is what happens at the office, with paper and phone, computer, copier. turns out that most of us do work that only makes use of the muscles of our fingers, Occasionally, we're asked to engage our forebrain as well. But the majority of us work moving words and numbers around on the information superhighway, but most of us who work do not labor. In fact, we hardly ever leave our chairs. But no matter what you do for a living, consider this. Consider the basic theory behind our current economic system. Just a few centuries ago, the father of modern, modern capitalism, Adam Smith, proposed that an economy works best if everyone is free to pursue their, pursue their, quote, enlightened self-interest, end quote. Now, that sounds like a good idea, except for the fact that most capitalists aren't enlightened. Therefore, we need governments to regulate the avarice and ignorance of the unenlightened capitalists. And that's a good idea, too, except for the fact that at this stage, our government is owned and operated by big business. They have become one and the same beast. So, workers of the world, I know that someone once said that business of this country is business. But can't we make it something else for a while? How about the business of this country is peace? 
or the business of this country is fun and games, or the business of this country is the health and healing of the planet. I'm not talking about communism here. As Abby Hoffman once said, all isms should be wasms. <laughs> what I'm talking about is sanity and survival. It's time to think about other ways to run an economy. So as you celebrate Labor Day, I urge you to consider the greater work, the larger purpose of your life, which may not have anything at all to do with your job. It could be that our real work in this lifetime is to understand ourselves better or to find our true gift and learn how to give it. Or maybe our real work is to learn how to see the full-on moment-to-moment beauty and sacredness of life and learn how to love the world better. Therefore, maybe our real work right now is to simplify our life so that we won't have to spend so much of it at work. Maybe then we will discover that our real job in this world is the labor of love. And this is Scoop saying to the workers of the world, I'm sticking to the union. If I can find one. Like the, the Buddhist teachers' union? No. <laughs> and of course, if you don't like the news, go out and make some of your own. So, just a little reflecting on this day, this weekend. A day that was set aside to, to honor the unions. And I heard some disparaging remarks about them in the last couple days. I won't say where, but you might guess. But uh, as practitioners of the Dharma, how do you think about the economy and what you do for a living? And do you practice right livelihood? Do you? Do you know? I mean, do you know uh, what your work is, is doing in the world? And, and are you okay with that? Do you have con- conflicts with what you do? Do you belong to a union? Do you feel like, do you feel like this, the, the way we're running our economy is the best way right now, the way that, the way that it's going? We have to stop thinking that more is better and that we, we can have more and more uh, goods and services and comforts and pleasures. We have to learn how to get, find our pleasures elsewhere. Joanna Macy is always saying that there's, there's, no, there's no satisfaction in more. If there's anything our, our civilization can teach us, and seems, the lesson seems to be, you can have it all, and still you won't be satisfied. Because we pretty much have it all. I mean, maybe not all of us have it all, but if you live in Berkeley, and, you know, you have enough money to go to the farmer's market or go out to eat, you know, a few times a week and have good shelter and enough entertainment and diversion to keep you happy for the rest of your life, I mean, you know? Uh, what, where do we go from here? The world cannot sustain the way we live now, let alone increasing 
our consumption. And that's, I mean, it's a dilemma. That's what the stimulus is all about, right? Let's stimulate the economy. Let's get more uh, consumption going, growth. Is that what we really want? And, you know, there are a lot of people without, without jobs, and, and so you, you say, yeah, we, we, need to, we need to develop the economy so more people can go back to work, etc. Uh, but I'm not sure. I mean, I've always advocated for not a stimulus package, a, a sedative package, I think, is, <laughs> is what our, our civilization needs. I have, I have proposed in the past a setting up a department of meditation and therapy where and the government would would set up these deprogramming centers around the country to de- teach hyperactive american workers how to be less productive members of a less productive society to learn how to live more simply and these are i don't know these are questions that, that i think come up on a time like labor day or maybe should come up as you're you know eating your your barbecued uh, chicken apple hot dog and you know, with <laughs> dijon mustard and on a walnut baked bread of some kind you know you know what you do in berkeley so i'm just i'm just saying i'm throwing that out there you know do you want do you want to stimulate the economy do you want more more growth What's the alternative? Is there an alternative? You aren't going to leave me high and dry here now, are you? <laughs> I don't have any answers. Yes. Yeah. So I, I just, I, I know you're a, uh, Voracious reader, did you happen to read this study that uh, that the the uh, that if if a household reaches seventy one thousand dollars a year, that that's sufficient money to make the whole household happy? Happy, happy, and beyond beyond that amount of money, there's no more happiness to be derived. They came up with this number. <laughs> Seventy-something uh-huh. thousand dollars. Uh-huh. Well, okay, I, I'd be I'd be happy with that. <laughs> I'd like to try that for a while. I don't, I don't know exactly what I'd do with it, but uh, there there's also some studies though about uh, increase in dissatisfaction over. From something like the 1950s, there was some studies, and and uh, along with the accumulation of wealth and the increasing, you know, uh, affluence that did not create a concomitant uh, increase in happiness, and in fact, it was just the reverse. I don't know. There's you know, there's lots of studies about that. Uh, some of the monks I've talked to, Western monk people who have become monks and, and joined the order, say it's just such a delight to be out of that, out of that whole 
race, that whole circle of produce, consume, work, you know, try to get ahead, try to find happiness out there. I mean, our, our Constitution guarantees your right to pursue happiness, which implies that it's out there running away from you in some way, that, that it is a chase, it is a... Chuangtze, Chuangtze, the great Taoist trickster, says, I don't know what happiness is, but I, when I see the way people chase after it, I, I think it's uh, an illusion that they're running after. And the only way you'll ever find happiness is just to stop and just be still. And you may, all, may, you may already be happy, you know. I mean, that's, I, that's one of the great revelations of meditation practice, is when you can settle the mind a little bit even, you know, and just sit there and just feel your breath and kind of ignore some of the, you know, your worry thoughts or ignore your planning thoughts. I mean, that's a lot of what meditation is about, is learning how to ignore yourself. If you can do that just a little bit, it's a whole different kind of satisfaction. It's a whole different kind of, happiness when the mind is not rolling in desire or aversion of some kind the Buddha said it you know there's no higher happiness than peace of mind did you have your hand up or you were just fixing your hair no oh yes well perhaps we could work on terraforming Mars and just move there and make a fresh start. Did you see the pictures? <laughs> I did. They, they looked kind of like, uh, you know, they looked kind of like the Kalahari um, a bit, perhaps. Yeah, we, we could have Burning Man there, but I don't, I don't know what else. It didn't look real fun. Well, it would be simpler, a simpler yeah. environment, let's say. It would be simpler. I mean, and, and there's very little doubt that we are, we are coming to a time where... where well, I don't, I don't want to go there. But uh, the, some of the leading environmentalists talk about the sustainability of the planet being at about a fifth the population of humans as it is now. Uh, James Lovelock, who wrote, who sort of came up with the Gaia hypothesis of, of the Earth as a single living, breathing being, the goddess, uh, he says by the end of this century or the next, he expects there to be about two billion people on the planet out of necessity. It's a cheery thought, huh? Well, I mean, some of us are going to die, die off naturally. I expect to. <laughs> every, every 
you know, the the average mammalian species lives for about five million years. That was uh, the the figure of, of the average. It's common for very successful species to overpopulate and uh, overconsume their their resource base and then die back. That's just how nature works. And it's really clear there are too many of us. Some of you will have to go. <laughs> any any volunteers? Hmm? Yeah, there, we, Mars, no, not Mars. Yes. It's a pretty big topic, so I'll try to make a brief comment. I, th- I like to think of money as a sort of a language, a language of power and value, who gets what. And in that way, we all sort of contribute to it. We all believe in this language. And at a certain point when the inequity becomes too great, we're all contributing, or to whatever extent we do, to a language that doesn't serve us. And a language can change. Mm-hmm. It could happen in a minute. I mean, what was it, in 2008, the whole equation almost broke, apparently. At least they say that. Mm-hmm. So maybe it can change mm-hmm. very quickly. The problem with it is, is it possible to change in a way that doesn't create so much chaos that we can't even survive that? Mm-hmm. So that's all. Yeah, I'll say. That, that's the, yeah, that's the language can change, and our relationship to money and and to wealth and and affluence and accumulation that can change, and that's partly why I bring it up, and, and I bring it up. I, I, I'm determined to bring it up more and more in Dharma groups. Because I, I feel like, you know, our relationship to ourselves is one part of the puzzle, and our relationship to the larger society is another part of the puzzle, and how we are in the world, you know, based on what we, what we understand will bring us happiness or satisfaction. I think that a lot of us, and myself, I include myself, you know, I, I can come to a real, I think, pretty profound understanding of that desire wheel and how it, you know, it just controls me. And I, you know, can not have, not have control over it. I mean, I can let myself go and be greedy and expect, you know, Really nice dinners. Uh, and not that they're bad in and of themselves. It's just, it's just a question that you have to raise, you know, um, every once in a while. Um, I am getting my doctorate in environmental studies, and I'm surrounded by all these sort of um, population scientists and climate scientists. And um, and we started talking the other day about climate change and 
the sort of inevitability of climate change and and uh, what could happen once we hit one to two degrees Celsius and change. And, and a lot of us, I think, have this tendency to be like, well, I don't want to talk about it, you know? Right. Like right. you did. I, it's hard to think about it. But it seems to some extent, I start to wonder, like, how much is the silence, like, enabling kind of these abuses we're doling out on the planet? Like, sometimes I wonder when we're going to get to the point where we're like, a lot of us could die if we keep behaving the same way we are and we need to change. Like I just, and it, but without becoming that crazy person who's, you know, who's out there proselytizing, like how do we find that balance of being really honest about, you know, where we're at environmentally and that action, you know, probably is needed versus sort of that, you know, Irritating. This is, yeah, this yeah. is a tough topic. And so let's just not bring it up, you know, like when do we become responsible for our silence? Good question. That is a very good question. How much do you do you bring it up, and and do you talk to your friends and your little circle of people then about how you're living, and you know what what is it what is it doing, and you know it's you don't want to be the party pooper, you know, but it's those are big big questions. Just an interesting note at this. Juncture, it, I was at uh, Heyday Books the other day, and Heyday is uh, Malcolm Margolin's publishing house, and he does wonderful books about the environment, the Bay Area, uh, geology, Native Americans who used to live here, etc. Anyway, he's doing a book on the Pleistocene, and you know there were saber-toothed tigers here, and there was mastodons running around in the, the Berkeley Hills, and. Uh, they weren't the Berkeley Hills yet, but they, they were on their way. But it, the Pleistocene was a very cold time, and the ice uh, in the Arctic and Antarctic areas sucked up a lot of the ocean water, and the oceans went way down to the extent that the bay was a meadow, that you could walk to the Farallon Islands, and uh, there's, uh, if you go out past the Golden Gate Bridge a ways, and not too far, apparently there's this cliff that was once a waterfall from the rivers that flowed through the bay and out, the, out through the Golden Gate there. But, and and they would, uh, there was a huge waterfall there, so like Victoria Falls. This was, you know, a few million years ago. But... The awareness, awareness, awareness that everything is changing and moving, and including all the species of life on this planet, having that perspective can be very healing, and and really, you know, give us a a, a big picture that we can kind of carry with us through the difficulties. You know that things don't remain the same in nature. Uh, some biologist I was reading, evolutionary biologist, I can't remember, was talking about how we're always evolving. Every, every moment, the genetic material is changing all around us and everywhere around us. It's not, like we're not set in this form. I mean, and I think 
mindfulness. I think the discovery of mindfulness was like a huge leap of understanding, of self-awareness. Robert Thurman uh, teaches at Columbia, teaches uh, Tibetan studies, the father of Uma. And he... He says, he calls meditation an evolutionary sport. He also, he he says, uh, practice, practice. That's all I hear the Buddhists talk about, practice. When's the performance? (laughs) So, any, okay, a couple more and then we'll... Say goodbye. In defense of unions, I just want to let people know that um, there's a proposition that is masquerading as keeping special interest money out, Proposition 32, but it's really about keeping union money out. So read it carefully. Read Proposition 32 carefully. Okay, thank you. Okay, one more, and then you, and then... The first thing I'm going to put on my party-pooping crank hat and speak out, as did Caitlin Moran in her new book, How to Be a Woman, in honor of women who choose childlessness and men who choose childlessness as a mindful way of expressing the nurture of the planet rather than our biological hooey. And beautiful. That's beautiful. And second, I'd like to put on my happy hat and say, and I think it was the Pliocene era, ended in a methane catastrophe where 90% of all mammalian species were eliminated. But think that if that is so, then the Bengal tiger came after that. And lemurs came after that. And all of these things that we are seeing and mourning the passing of our new. Right, right. <laughs> they make way for, right, yeah. make way for something new, right. We could use something new. Uh, I, I sometimes, when I'm walking around Spirit Rock and, and all the little lizards, you know, the little, and they're always running around, running away from your, footsteps and I think this is revenge for the mammals who had to live under the footsteps of the of the giant dinosaurs this is what it's like boom boom (laughs) oh yes I just had um one observation or one thing to say that I was thinking about when you mentioned planets and I'm, I'm obsessed with the universe and planets and galaxies and just the whole vastness of you know what's out there and what we don't know but like the fact that we're evolving as a species and that you know life force on earth is evolving and the universe is evolving and that you know li- life on other planets is so likely that it is evolving this in the same manner, and that technology is really speeding fast in this current, you know, um, 
time period. You know, we're, we're, we're moving very fast technologically. And then the ex, what I would expect on other planets that had life that became intelligent, most likely would become intelligent on some level, that it would also evolve technologically and that we're going to meet at some point. It may be in our lifetime, but it may not. But that's just such almost like a given to me, yeah. you know, that the, 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 we're going to cross paths one day. And that's something that really uh, inspires me. I, I suspect their first message to us will be, keep the noise down, would you, you know? They, they found one planet that is in the Goldilocks zone, in the habitable zone, uh, going around a sun uh, that's about a couple dozen light years away from Earth, Gliese 581G. And if it's a couple dozen light years from Earth, and there is intelligent life on that planet, we can expect that they'll just about be watching their first episode of I Love Lucy. You know, <laughs> take 25 years or so for the light to get there. And, and they, you know, it won't be in reruns. It'll be, they'll be seeing it for the first time. <laughs> it's very exciting. I mean, we've, we have at last found out the reason for the opposable thumb. Texting, yeah, that's what it was there for. We finally figured that out. Okay, I'm going to read a poem, and then we'll call it an evening here. Here's a great poem by the greatest poet alive. Guess who I'm talking about? Mary Oliver, of course. The Sun. Have you ever seen anything in your life more wonderful? than the way the sun every evening, relaxed and easy, floats toward the horizon and into the clouds or the hills or the rumpled sea and is gone, and how it slides again out of the blackness every morning on the other side of the world like a red flower, streaming upward on its heavenly oils, say, on a morning in late summer at its perfect imperial distance, and have you ever felt for anything such wild love? Do you think there is anywhere in any language a word billowing enough for the pleasure that fills you as the sun reaches out, as it warms you, as you stand there empty-handed? Or have you too turned from this world? Have you too gone crazy for power, for things? The Sun by Mary Oliver. Let's sit for a minute.
Thank you all for coming. Have a nice Labor Day weekend. See you somewhere on the path. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.